Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community continues their series of virtual community conversations on race and economic realities in 21st century America. The case for reparations is based upon three periods of American history. It's not based exclusively upon slavery. We'll discuss Florida women and the women's suffrage movement. There was a strong anti-suffrage movement among women, especially in the South. And we'll visit Criteria Studios in Miami, where classic 20th century songs were recorded. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Just talk. Can we just talk? Talk about where we're going. The Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, presented by the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, continues their series of virtual community conversations on race and economic realities in the 21st century on Tuesday, March 16th at 7 p.m. The panel will include William Darity and Kirsten Mullen, co-authors of the book From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, and Paul Ortiz, author of the books Emancipation Betrayed and the African American and Latinx History of the United States. I'll be moderating the discussion. A year ago, PEC Executive Director N.Y. Nathiri realized that their public programming for 2021 would need to be approached differently. The beginning of March uh, was when it really occurred to me that I should bring forward to our National Planners Annual Spring Meeting, which generally occurs the third week of March, uh, that we we should probably talk seriously about the possibility that we would not be able to present an in-person uh, festival. That, because it seemed around uh, that time that um, there were a number of uh, thought pieces uh, that I was seeing, for example, in the New York Times, I was hearing people who uh, in science uh, talking about what might occur. And as you say, because we have to because we have to plan months in advance, because there are certain sponsorship opportunities that we have to look at, uh, frankly, because of the Orange County Tourist Development Tax Grant application that uh, that is submitted uh, generally the first part of July, we really didn't have the luxury of waiting. And as I talked with board members about the fact that we couldn't wait till October to make a decision about whether we would do an outdoor festival, that we had to get ahead of it and make a determination one way or the other. So the short answer is really the first part of uh, first week in March 
of 2020, it occurred to me that we need to really grapple with this eventuality. The annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities usually attracts tens of thousands of people to the Eatonville community. This year, the Zora Festival was presented as a hybrid event with only a handful of intimate in-person gatherings. And why Nefiri? So we had, as it turned out, uh, maybe a half a dozen in-person uh, programs. For us, the most important elements were to be able to present engaging programming while at the same time keeping people safe and having the assurance to those who were considering participating that our first uh, priority was to keep them safe. And so even with the, uh, the, the only program where we had hundreds of people was the drive-in movies because hundreds of people were there, but each of them uh, was in uh, their own vehicles. And so, uh, but for example, when we did our, um, when we did our driving tour of uh, yards and gardens, that was, I think we had about 15 people. Uh, when we did our um, programming and experiencing Eatonville where there uh, people were walking again, small groups. Um, but yes, we did, we did do um, in-person program because frankly, the uh, Orange County Tourist Development Tax um, Award requires in-person. Uh, but clearly, the great majority of what we have programming was virtual. The hybrid Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities began on January 7th with a virtual 130th birthday party for Eatonville's most famous resident, writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston. Participants could order a commemorative box containing a glass of champagne or sparkling grape juice and a cupcake. There were toasts to Zora and a DJ kept things moving for those gathered on Zoom. In addition to the virtual birthday party, uh, we did a, a program called uh, Sankofa, which was a cooking uh, workshop, very well received. It was actually called uh, and Sankofa, honoring our food traditions. We collaborated with uh, Seminole State College of Florida to present a webinar by Dr. Regina Bradley um, called The Demo Tape, Ain't Nobody Wanna Hear, uh, a hip hop um, uh, discussion. Uh, and our second Africa America Women's Economic Forum, uh, which took place from eight in the morning until 1.45 in the afternoon because uh, so many of our presenters were in Africa in Ghana, in Nigeria, in South Africa. And then for Education Day, we actually had two virtual programs. One was our eighth annual Zora STEM conference for middle school youngsters, uh, students. And the second was our Afrofuturism conference, uh, which did have limited in-person participation. The University of Central Florida College of Arts and Humanities sponsored of that program and we were uh, downtown at the downtown campus. Frankly, we knew that we could not uh, present the Outdoor Festival of the Arts because the demographic is um, thousands of people, uh, the great majority of whom are of Afri African ancestry. It would have been irresponsible for us to be bringing tens of thousands of people to Eatonville 
so it so that that festival festival of the arts would have become uh, a super spreader okay i mean that's just you know the harsh realities uh, when you have two to three times the deaths of COVID-19 victims being people of African ancestry. The Zora Festival was held throughout the month of January and continued beyond into February and March with the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community presenting a series of virtual community conversations. And why Nathiri? We thought we could make a contribution to an understanding as well as a discussion of issues which, as we say, time after time, surface within communities of color. And in this instance, with all of the exposure that COVID-19 has produced in terms of just a variety of inequities, uh, disparities, you know, the whole litany of uh, where, where things are not balanced or equally represented, this whole business of the economic, uh, the economic disparities that exist within the context of 21st century America, we thought that this a discussion of race coupled with the economic realities in 21st century America was an opportunity for us to make a, a credible and significant contribution to the public square. The third virtual presentation in the Community Conversation series will be a panel discussion including Dr. William A. Darity, co-author of the book From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. The case for reparations is based upon three periods of American history. It's not based exclusively upon slavery. Uh, it's based upon, of course, it's based upon slavery as the origin point for white supremacy in the United States, but it's also based upon nearly a century of legal segregation in the United States, the Jim Crow period, that was accompanied by wave upon wave of white massacres directed against black communities that displayed some evidence of prosperity. And those massacres, uh, North, South, East and West in the United States. I think in, in the year 1919, what, which is frequently referred to as the Red Summer of 1919, there were upwards of 30 of these massacres that took place in that single year. Uh, these massacres resulted in substantial loss of black lives, but they also resulted in either the destruction or the appropriation of black property by the white terrorists. So this compounded uh, conditions of, of, of loss of wealth on the part of the black community. Uh, and then uh, in the aftermath of the civil rights acts of the 1960s, we have had sustained atrocities, the continuation of mass incarceration of black Americans, uh, police killings of unarmed blacks, ongoing discrimination in labor and in uh, credit and housing markets. Uh, but we also have the uh, immense racial wealth differential in the United States, which, uh, which I think can be viewed as, as, as an important index of the cumulative across-generation effects of, of racism in the United States. This month marks one year since organizations like the Florida Historical Society and the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community have had to develop creative new ways of presenting educational public programming. 
While initially a challenge for most organizations, many have seen positive outcomes. And why Nathiri? Absolutely. Uh, a great deal of positive uh, from our perspective. Uh, first, we were able to stage with a very strong technical team, uh, which meant that we experienced no glitches, literally no glitches, whether it was in our gathering and gabbing Zora Neale Hurston Book Club, whether it was um, a webinar uh, that we were producing out of the Excellence Without Excuse uh, lab studios. And I, I smile when I say that because we actually have transitioned and repurposed our community computer arts lab into literally a working studio, uh, which meant then that we had the ability to control the means of production. Uh, what we've also experienced is a great, um, how would you say, our audience literally has, ex I mean, it has expanded. I mean, we've had people from Dubai, from Russia, as I said, not, not even counting the Africa-America Women's Economic Forum. It's just really quite, it's really quite something to have your audience uh, be global. And so uh, for us, we, we will continue. I think uh, I've talked with a few colleagues who would say the same, we will not go back. We will maintain the virtual presence. We can't, we, we can't afford to let it go simply because of, of the, of the place that we've established. Uh, but of course, we'll look forward to the, the in-person programming uh, resuming late fall or the um, winter of 2022. The Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, presented by the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, continues their series of virtual community conversations on race and economic realities in the 21st century on Tuesday, March 16th at 7 p.m. The panel will include William Darity and Kirsten Mullen, co-authors of the book From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, and Paul Ortiz, author of the books Emancipation Betrayed and the African-American and Latinx History of the United States. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, last time we discussed the role of black women's organizations of the early 20th century in reform and women's rights. How active were the women of Florida in what they called the woman suffrage movement? We sometimes forget that the fight for woman suffrage was not one just between women who demanded the ballot and men who were reluctant to vote for it. There was a strong anti-suffrage movement among women, especially in the South. Elna Green, a former professor at FSU 
and currently a member of the FHQ editorial board, has written extensively on the Southern anti-suffrage movement. Based on a sampling of 800 women, Green concluded that the anti-suffrage advocates in the South were more closely tied to the plantation economy, women who opposed suffrage had less education, and were less involved in reform organizations. Pro-suffrage advocates were more likely to be urban and tied to the industrial New South, to have more education, and to be active in other reform efforts. Today's women must grapple with the racial conflict at the heart of the suffrage campaign. One argument against woman suffrage that antis regularly voiced was the concern that enfranchising women would enfranchise black women and disrupt political white supremacy. Suffrage advocates did not take the high road and argue for political equality. Rather, they made the argument that there were more white women in the South than black women and white political domination would remain in force. You can see the consequences of the failure of white women to advocate for and with black women in feminist conflicts today. The Florida state legislature did not vote on ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Enfranchisement of women in every state occurred when Tennessee became the 36th state to ratify the amendment. Florida enacted a state law granting suffrage to all citizens in 1921 and symbolically ratified the 19th Amendment in 1969. In 1929, Edna Giles Fuller became the first woman elected to the Florida State House. Women did not break the male domination of the Florida Senate until 1963, when Beth Johnson was elected. The first woman elected to the U.S. House from Florida was Ruth Bryan Owens, the daughter of William Jennings Bryan, three-time presidential candidate, U.S. Senator, and Secretary of State. The first black woman elected to the Florida legislature was Carrie P. Meek, who was elected to the Florida House in 1979 becoming the first black person in the legislature in the 20th century. She was elected to the Florida Senate in 1982 and became the first black woman elected to the U.S. House from Florida in 1992. Connie, who were the women who stood out as advocates of woman suffrage? We've already talked about Mary McLeod Bethune, who defied the Ku Klux Klan intimidation on the doorstep of her school. She pushed black Floridians to register and pay their poll tax to vote in the contentious 1920 election. And on election day, she led the march of black Daytonans to the polls to vote together. She did not hold back in her advocacy for the vote or in her advocacy for equality. Another less likely and perhaps less well-known Florida advocate for woman suffrage was the subject of an article in the FHQ by Judith Poucher. A longtime suffragist, Mary Nolan became one of the women who suffered incarceration and brutality in what became known in suffrage history as the Night of Terror. In January 1917, members of the National Women's Party began picketing the White House as silent sentinels to hold Democrats and the Wilson administration responsible for failing to pass the 19th Amendment pursuant to the state ratification process. 
Mary Nolan joined the Silent Sentinels in front of the White House and was jailed several times. She was unique among the women who experienced the brutality directed against them. She was 73 years old at the time, a new recruit to the National Women's Party. Her only education was convent school, and she was a Southerner. Nolan was a member of the NPW's National Advisory Board in 1919 and wrote to the NPW founder, Alice Paul, about her frail health. She died in 1925, among the last of the suffragists who began with Susan B. Anthony. In 1980, the Jacksonville chapter of NOW established the Mary Nolan Award to be given to an outstanding Jacksonville feminist every year on August 26th, Women's Equality Day. Great. Well, thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Some of the best-loved songs of the late 20th century were recorded in Miami. Holly Baker has this look at Criteria Studios. Criteria Studios, an iconic recording studio in Miami, Florida, was founded in 1958 by musician Mac Emmerman. Since then, the studio has been the source of many hit songs. Jeff Nolan is an independent music and marketing consultant and the historian for Hard Rock International. He talked to me about Criteria Studios. I think with Criteria, a thing that I, I love about it is you know, it is truly iconic, and you can't overstate how important criteria was and still is to the development of American popular music. It, it was an incubator for some of the generation-defining sounds. In the 1970s, a long list of popular artists created legendary music in Criteria Studios, including Fleetwood Mac's Rumors and the Eagles' Hotel California. In November of 1970, Eric Clapton's group, Derek and the Dominoes, recorded their only studio album, Layla, at Criteria Studios. The song Layla from the album featured Eric Clapton's lead vocals and guitar, along with Dwayne Allman's lead and slide guitar. You know, if you look at Criteria and the amount of incredible and legendary music that was recorded there, Layla is certainly the one that jumps out and has the big story attached to it. You know, Clapton had that uh, sort of affinity for the area. And I mean, he even called an album 461 Ocean Boulevard, <laughs> which is just a house down the street. It's an extraordinary thing because it is so raw and heartfelt and real and incredibly well recorded, but unpolished. Criteria Studios was also at the forefront of the disco movement. The music group, the Bee Gees, were a fixture at Criteria in the 1970s, recording chart-topping songs like Stayin' Alive and How Deep Is Your Love in the studio. The Bee Gees, to me, are, even though they're, you know, Australian, I equate them to Miami for some reason. I, I just, they, they feel Miami-ish. But yeah, the Bee Gees recorded at Criteria a lot. Massive hits came out of there. They did the whole uh, Spirits Having Flown album. 
out of there, which was their follow-up to Saturday Night Fever, and it was just, you know, one hit after another. I mean, those guys were and are so brilliant. And because of the success they had with this, you know, kind of goofy disco movie, they sometimes get pigeonholed as this sort of era band. But the Gibb brothers are truly like Beatles-level brilliant writers, producers, and their uh, recorded output goes so, so much farther than just what they did for Saturday Night Fever or during the disco era. Uh, incredible, incredible band. And Criteria was a great fit for them. They got to work with a genius producer and they got to go to a great spot. Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees said that the rhythm of their 1975 song, Jive Talkin', originally called Drive Talkin', was inspired by the sound made by their car tires as they drove over the Julia Tuttle Causeway on their way from their Miami Beach homes to Criteria Studios. Jeff Nolan explains, Criteria Studios was popular with musicians not just because of the sunny location or the state-of-the-art studio equipment. The main reason so many musicians flocked to Criteria Studios was because of recording engineer and producer Tom Dowd. Criteria, as great a studio as it is, the, the legacy and its place in history is just as much about one man, Tom Dowd. This is as brilliant a record producer as we've ever seen in the history of contemporary music. It, that's, that's just a fact. I mean, the guy did it all and was such a brilliant creative soul. Some, some folks don't know this about Tom. Before he became a legendary recording engineer, he was a physicist. And Tom himself worked on the Manhattan Project. He was one of the physicists that worked, you know, on developing atomic energy and, well, the Avon. And how somebody goes from that sort of academic pursuit and that really dry sort of numbers game to recording the Layla album and dealing with those guys back then, uh, I think is, is, is that, that's fascinating to me. And I think that Tom himself, his presence at Criteria was a huge part of why that studio was so successful. People wanted to come work with Tom just as much as they wanted to come record in that room. In 1999, the Hit Factory purchased Criteria Studios and reopened the studios under the name The Hit Factory Criteria Miami. In 2017, the studio once again returned to the original Criteria Studios name. Today, the studio is a music landmark that's still used by popular musicians. You know, one thing that I think is noteworthy about Criteria is just the fact that it's still open and it's still doing relevant, viable work in the 21st century. Yeah, but it's not even just this legacy music. I mean, Drake's recorded in there. Nicki Minaj worked out of there. A lot of these legendary temples of recording from back in the day are gone. The, the advent of easy, inexpensive digital recording killed so many of the big studios. Be able to continue putting out relevant music in, in the 21st century is amazing. It speaks to uh, you know, how truly important that place is. 
you have to change and you have to evolve the technology, the acoustic space, the way you're working. That's part of why Criteria is able to stay viable in the 21st century. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week. Listen as a podcast and find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.